0: All right, just this last week, again at Home Group, Scott Kell told me a story that I can't get out of my head. Do you want to hear it? Okay, well, yeah, you're going to hear it. I mean, whether you want to or not, of course you want to hear it. So he compared two very different people who shared something in common, and he's a great storyteller, one of the best storytellers I've ever heard, and a very interesting dude, too. You should get to know him. I mean, funny stories, serious stories. And when he tells them, he's one of those guys, it's like he's practiced it. It's so good. I mean, as a public communicator, I just he's good at it. Uh, so the one woman is his wife, Trish Kell. Now, both of these women have suffered, but Trish has come out a, a true masterpiece. Her, her physical suffering has moved her closer to Jesus and closer to people who are really hurting and she has a tremendous gift of mercy as a result. Another woman suffered as well. You see, her son was born mentally handicapped. It was a tough life. And uh, this, this trial had done the opposite to her. Scott said that literally her pain and bitterness and anger were etched into her face. It was just a bitter, grumpy person. And Scott's uh, former pastor in church took this young, mentally handicapped boy that this woman was raising single-handedly uh, uh, under their wing. And they gave him meaningful opportunities in the church. And uh, th- this kid found that his, his most productive times, the times where he felt most useful and most connected, were when he was with this church family. And you would think that this single mom would be over the moon uh, with this, this church and this pastor, they would, she would just be so excited. But just the opposite was true. She was embittered towards the church. She thought the church was a bad influence on her son, and she was constantly ragging on the church to where eventually the boys stopped coming. And during one particular conversation, Scott recalls this woman ranting about how difficult it was to raise a mentally handicapped son, and she exploded If there's a God, he's got to answer to me. This woman's sour heart was shared by the Roman Jews that we're reading about now in Paul's letter to the church at Rome. You see, this young Roman church was being ripped apart from the inside because Christianity was still considered a sect of Judaism. So you had these uh, Jewish people, some were Christians, some were not, and you had these uh, uh, Gentile young Christians And these Jews were trying to say that in order to be truly Christian, you had to be circumcised. You had to follow Jewish dietary laws and and celebrate the Jewish holidays. And they were ripping one another apart. These Jews refused, many of them refused to accept that salvation was through faith in Christ and not through the law. They resisted the notion that they could miss salvation, being God's chosen people, while these pagan Gentiles received God's favor simply by putting their faith in Jesus. It was just too easy. They'd paid the price. Theirs was the heritage. They were the ones putting in the work. And throughout the letter, Paul's been laboring to communicate God's word to them, namely that salvation is about the finished work of Christ, about the work he's done for us, not the work that we do for him. And in order for anyone to see salvation by grace, through faith in Christ and not by works, they need to see that first they've done nothing to warrant God's favor or blessing. So in chapters 1 through 4, Paul tells them and us that the gospel declares God's righteousness and our sin. So in the first four chapters, he declares them and us guilty before God. These unsaved Jews lived alongside both saved Jews and new Christian Gentiles, so they needed to hear this message from God through Paul because they had been wrongly taught a message that wasn't in the Bible, and that salvation would come through their Jewish ethnicity and their adherence to the law. So in chapters 5 through 8, Paul takes it a step further and says that salvation is through another type of family. Not a physical one, but a spiritual run. He wrote, he wrote that the gospel creates a new humanity and a new family. Through the new Adam, Jesus Christ is the Lord and Father of this new family, a spiritual family. And then chapters 9 through 11, where we're at now, this third section of Romans, Paul communicates how the gospel fulfills God's promise to Israel. You see, Paul with spirit-led discernment realized that these Jews were wondering, hold on, has God flipped the tables on us? Because we thought salvation was through the law and through our Judaism, through our through being ethnically Jewish. And you're saying that it's through faith in Christ. So has God lied to us? Has God's word failed? And we'll see, as we've already seen and we'll see tonight, that God's plan for salvation has always been the same. They just misunderstood. And we'll see finally in the last and fourth section we'll get to in a couple weeks that the gospel alone can unify the church from chapter 12 through the end. The gospel alone because this church was so divided. And have you noticed what, what a precarious position we're in as a church? I'm always amazed that this many people and people all over the world who love and follow Jesus can be unified. Have you ever seen a church that's disunified? That to me makes sense. It takes just one little one little juicy bit of gossip. It takes just one little scandal and it can rip a church apart. That's why true biblical unity, what we have here is unfortunately rare and it's miraculous. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Only the gospel can bring the healing necessary for that. So Paul, out of a broken heart for his people, he says he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish for them He wants to show them just how how messed up their hearts and their minds are in relationship to God. And he starts by reminding them of just how much God has revealed to them, the Jews, the message of salvation. He says in Romans 9 verse 4, they, that is the Jews, they are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors. And Christ himself was an Israelite as far as human nature is concerned. And he's God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation tonight just so we can read the, the same chapter from a slightly different perspective so it can soak in maybe a little more. So Paul's saying that, hey, the gospel did originally come to you and you only. You are supposed to be the ones that received this promise. You are a special people. So knowing what they're thinking in response to this reminder of God's favor, Paul brings up the question he knows that's in all of their minds, and that really is the, uh, the premise for this whole section of Romans, this big question. Romans 9, verse 6. He, he, again, it's just this imaginary, this imaginary questioner is the teaching style that Paul's using, this imaginary debate. Romans 9, 6, Well then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? No, for not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. In other words, again, they're saying, Okay, God's word must have failed because more Jews are not receiving Christ. And... Uh, because they thought the promise was going to be again because of their ancestry and their adherence to the law. So God, the tables have been flipped and somehow God's word has failed. Somehow redemptive history up to the point of Christ has been a waste. They likely felt betrayed. We saw Paul continuing to drive the point home that his Jewish family must see that God's mercy is not a paycheck for their good behavior or their pursuit of the law, but it's a free gift in Romans 9, 14. Again, imaginary questioner. Are we saying then that God was unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. You see, no one has a claim to God's mercy, do they? And this makes the the Jews and Paul's audience and us furious, doesn't it? Because mercy is just that. It's not deserved. You see, you can't cry unfair when we talk about mercy because mercy by nature is not deserved. Paul's audience and we, we deserve punishment from God. We've sinned and we've fallen short. Mercy is a free gift. But we automatically think, well, if... God shows mercy to some, and they receive it, and then others don't receive God's mercy. Somehow it means God is unfair, and that's a ridiculous notion. It's just not true. Mercy is not deserved by nature, and they had a hard time with this. They wanted to earn it. They wanted to earn it, and many of us are in that boat, aren't we? We think to ourselves, but I, I am so much more righteous. I'm so much more moral than most of the people I know. How could God not favor me? Or look at my heritage. I've gone to church my whole life. My parents are Christian. My grandparents are Christian. Of course, I'm I'm fine. But there's been no repentance. That is turning from our sin and turning to Christ. That should be regular for believers. And that's what Paul is encouraging here, that it's through repentance. It's by God's grace that we turn to him and say, I have nothing to offer you. I'm broken. And he heals us. These Roman Jews and us need to hear Romans 3.23, which we read weeks ago, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our default mode is lost and deserving of God's judgment despite our best efforts to please him. So Paul then ramps up through Romans 9. Again, just to give us a little bit of review, he ramps up. He provided a positive example by talking about compassion and God's mercy and now he uses a negative example that would have had them all cheering. It would have been like Michigan for Ohio State fans. You know, they bring up, you know, you bring up Michigan, that is our, our, you know, uh, tackling dummy. You know, we, we, you bring up Michigan, everybody's got a joke, everybody's got something bad to say about him, right? If you're a true Buckeye. Well, Paul here brings up Pharaoh, and Pharaoh to them would be like Hitler to us. I mean, they hated Pharaoh, and in Romans 9:17. Paul refers to the Exodus and God turning Pharaoh over to his own hard heart. And he gives Pharaoh, despite him being worse than Hitler, in his persecution of the Israelites and genocide of the Israelites, despite his evil, God gives him chance after chance to humbly turn and release God's people from Egyptian bondage. And the average Israelite, the average Jews, Paul's audience, they would have have heard this story... And what would have come to their head, most likely, what would have come to their mind would be, well, in this story, this is classic good versus evil. God saves the good guys, and that's us, the Israelites, and he punishes the bad guys. And the bad guys were Egypt and Pharaoh. And God saved us because we're us. We're the Jews. We're favored. They're not. And the there is everybody. The, the they is everybody, any Gentile, any non-Jew. So he knew this would be their mindset, and he's just about to pull the rug out from underneath them here, and he's hoping that their cheers will turn to tears. And that's where many of us, that's where we need to get to tonight. He says to them in so many words, "Your heart is just like Pharaoh's. It's hard." And this likely would have infuriated them to think that, wow, so you're saying that my heart is, is like Pharaoh's. You th- can, you, can you see how confusing this would have been to them? They're thinking they're doing a pretty good job obeying the law. This would have been repulsive to them to be compared to the likes of Pharaoh. So that's where we're headed here. They were deceived in two very decisive ways. Very clearly, they were deceived in two ways, and we want to go over those tonight. So we start in Romans 9, verse 30. Romans 9, verse 30. It says, what does all this mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God, and it was by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting in him. They stumbled over the great rock in their path. God warned them of this in scripture when he said, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. But anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. So the first deception is they were wrong about the way to make things right with God. These Roman Israelites were trying to work for God instead of receiving his work for us. We just read in verses 30 through 31 that the Gentiles were not following God's standards, but they were made right with God. Again, this would have been very confusing to the Jews here. The Gentiles did not possess a full picture of God's righteousness like the Jews did because they didn't have the law. They had their consciences, according to Romans 2, but... They didn't follow it. Instead, like anyone who doesn't know Christ, they followed their own selfishness and pleasure. That was their gospel, their religion. And ironically, the Gentiles who lived such wicked lives were more open to the gospel than their Jewish neighbors who had the law and tried to keep it. We see in verse 32 that these Jews had a deep awareness that they needed righteousness to appear before God. And the Gentiles didn't have this awareness. They didn't care. And the problem, according to verse 32, is that uh, these Jews were pursuing this righteousness through works. They were stumbling, like all of us did before receiving Christ, over the concept of righteousness being offered to us as a gift that Jesus has already earned. So the ones who knew the most about God failed to know him, while the ones who knew the least about God came to know him best. And isn't that how it always is? Jesus came for the sick, for those who realize that they're spiritually sick, not for those who think they're already good enough. The ones who most wanted to be righteous ended up dead in their sins. While the ones who least wanted righteousness ended up holy and blameless in his sight. Isn't that crazy? When we talk about these Gentile Roman, these, these Gentiles who came to know Christ in Rome, they would have been a part of all kinds of unspeakable pagan revelry. Worse than anybody you know. Way worse than anybody you know. Uh, Stuff that, you know, it's unspeakable what they were engaged in. And Paul's saying that those who weren't even trying saw the gospel as good news. Salvation from sin and condemnation and guilt. While those who were supposed to receive the message first The ones to whom the promise was originally given of salvation, the Jews, they didn't see it. Sometimes our own sense of self-sufficiency, our own sense of independence are the nails that close us off and away six feet under from the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Reminds me of another letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 123 Paul says so when we preach that Christ was crucified the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense do you see the self the self deception here how one tries to be made right with god in the wrong way or to be made right in general in the wrong way for the gentiles and maybe like some of you the gospel seems like nonsense you think to yourself, Christianity is one more theory. It's just white noise. It's just a clever myth. It's just a superstition. To you, life is about self-fulfillment through pursuing your own pleasures and agenda. Some of you might be saying here tonight, if you don't know Christ, you might be saying, but Chris, I do a lot of good things. I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do a lot of things that are, that are way better than many of us. But those things are done with the selfish intention of simply trying to feel good about yourself or they're done to feel like you have a meaningful life. There's only one who is truly selfless, and his name is Jesus Christ. And it's only through knowing this selfless person, Jesus, that we can become truly selfless and love others and find joy even when our outward circumstances are far from pleasurable. True pleasure is found in him alone. But for others of you you're like the non-Messianic Jews who were offended by Christ. To you, it's, a, it's repulsive to admit that you need a Savior because you've got this tremendous moral compass. And I have to say, I have to ask you tonight, what, how much sin is enough to condemn us apart from Christ? Or put another way, who did Jesus die for? Just those who are really bad? Just of those who, who have committed the sins that, that you think are way beyond what you're ever capable, probably are capable of ever committing. For all have sinned, all means all, and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus would have died even if it was just you. It's not your moral compass that saves you. It's not your sense of decency. It's through Christ alone. So now on to the second deception. Deception. Zeal without knowledge. Romans chapter 10, verse 1 says, Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it's misdirected zeal. Paul is pained at the zeal that his Jewish brethren have without knowledge. You see, they were pursuing the law intently. I mean, they, they were going after it but they didn't have the knowledge of salvation. You know, I see that in my own neighborhood. I see Orthodox Jews on a freezing cold sub-zero February day with snow on both sides of of the the road. You can't even use the sidewalk. And they're pushing their strollers with little babies and infants and the elderly are walking to synagogue. I admire that. zeal. I mean, there's some ways I, I admire that, but I'm also brokenhearted by it because salvation doesn't come through works. It comes through grace. You know, popular culture teaches that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. But we don't really believe this, do we? I mean, this is really a ridiculous notion that zeal by itself is enough. I mean, imagine with me for a second a 12-year-old coming to you with a cold convinced that a poisonous concoction of cyanide and Kool-Aid was the way to be made well. No matter how passionate they were about this crazy punch they were about to drink, no matter how zealous they were, you would try to shake them and tell them, hey, you can't, this will kill you if you take it. All of life presents us with wrong and right. One plus one is two. It's not three. If you jump off a cliff, gravity will pull you to your death. If you drink poisonous Kool-Aid, it will cause your heart to stop beating. There is one way to God. And it's through Jesus Christ. And they thought, these Jews thought that their zealous commitment to the law would save them. And Paul's brokenhearted about this. And for us who know and love Jesus, it should break our hearts with the zealous ways people try to make their lives work. Even some noble ways, like commitment to family. You know, many, hey, it's all about my family. Or it's all about love. This person I'm in love with or married to. Or it's all about doing good for my community. I have many friends like that. But that is zeal without knowledge. It's a good thing that should come out of salvation, but it's not our salvation. Let's see where this zeal is misdirected specifically here in context. Uh, Romans 10 verse 3. For they, that's th- these, these uh, Roman Jews, for they don't understand God's way of making people right with Himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. So Paul's already said this in a ton of different ways. You guys notice that Romans has a lot of repetition? The reason why is we're very thick-headed. And the Bible talks about grace a lot, a lot, because we don't have a hard time understanding, I don't think, I think we have a harder under- time understanding grace than we do judgment. The grace and mercy of Christ, that he could save the worst of sinners, Paul says he is the worst of sinners, simply by receiving Christ as Lord, his free gift of salvation. It just seems too good to be true. It's Jesus' work for us that saves us, not our own work. So next we see Paul continuing to answer the question he brought up at the beginning of chapter 9, has God's word failed? In verse 5, he says, For Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commands. Paul argues, okay, God's word hasn't failed. More specifically, God's always been saving by faith and not works. And here in verse 5, he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, where Moses says of God, If you obey my decrees and my regulations, you will find life through them. I am the Lord. It may seem on the surface like Moses was teaching that salvation comes through obeying the law. When actually Moses is saying, if you could obey the whole law perfectly, you would find life. But that's impossible. Because there's only one who's perfectly obeyed the law. Both in heart, that is motivation, and in deed. And that's Jesus Christ. And he's obeyed on our behalf. And Paul continues in verse 6. But faith's way of getting right with God says, don't say in your heart who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down, and don't say who will go down to the place of the dead to bring Christ back to life again. In fact, it says the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart, and that message is the very message about faith that we preach. Now here, once again, we see Paul doing this quite a bit in Romans, but he is uh, referring to 14 verses. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 14, but he he jogs their memory of all 14 of these verses just sharing one, verse 14 of Deuteronomy 30. And I'll summarize this section here. Uh, Israel strays from God and receives curses and punishment. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, it says, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts so you may love him with all your heart and soul and live. And then in verse 11 of the same chapter, he says, now what I'm telling you is not impossible to do. You don't have to go to heaven or to death to do it. So Paul is quoting in Romans 10 verse 6 what faith already knows. Faith knows that we don't need to do anything to be righteous. We don't need to scale heaven because Jesus has already unlocked the gates for us. And we don't need to attempt to deal with our own sin and death because Christ has already done that for us too. Paul is simply showing that Moses knew that something more than law keeping was required for salvation. So in other words, Paul's saying, the message hasn't changed. Even Moses communicated the gospel. Elsewhere, we'll see him saying, even David communicated the gospel. All the greats, those faith heroes that you idolize, my Jewish countrymen, they, they communicated the gospel. The message is the same as it's always been. This is not a bait and switch. Then in verse 9, it says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord. So here he's moving to, to how one comes to know Christ. He's been talking about this faith. Now he's, you know, he, this is the close. He's been communicating the deal the whole time, and now he's closing this, this message here. It says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's by believing in your heart that you're made right with God, and it's by openly declaring your faith that you're saved. Now, this passage can be a little bit uh, misleading in English because it makes it sound like there are two separate things we need to do to get saved. We need to first can, uh, confess with our mouth and then believe in our heart. And I thought that for years, that there's two separate things that we need to do for salvation. But really, in the original language, this, the conf- uh, uh, confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart are the same thing. Because faith is what you say with your mouth because you believe it in your heart. You know, many think that these two verses are saying that we have to say some kind of magical prayer in order to be saved. We have to just pray just the exact right words. Really, confessing with your heart or confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart are are two sides of the same coin. Meaning to confess with your mouth is simply part of believing with your heart. They both profess faith in Christ. It's not about magic words. It's about transferring your trust, uh, your hope, and control of your life to Jesus Christ. It's by surrendering to him. Someone can pray magic words and not do that. Okay, because many will tell you you have to pray these exact words in order to be saved, and that's not true. You hear the message of the cross and the resurrection, and you transfer trust and control of your life over to Jesus Christ. You can pray a prayer out loud, but that not be going on in your heart. And the news gets even better from here. In Romans ten eleven, it says, as the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Anyone can do this. In the next verse, he says, even, even Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles, slave or free, male or female, everybody Anyone can receive this message. It's open for everybody. It doesn't discriminate. And in the next verse, he tells his fellow Jews how to move towards Christ and away from self-deception. In verse 13, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But what does this mean? What does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved? This is really important. In verse 14, he answers that. He says, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? Very logical, right? Logical argument. So the message of the gospel must be heard. But this means way more than just hearing with your ears. It means actually to give the gospel a hearing. In other words, you're really considering Is this true? You're trying to understand it. That's what this is talking about. Not anybody can, this isn't just flipping the message of the gospel on the radio or something. It's just to hear it. That's part of it, but it's to understand it. And it says it must be preached. And that's talking about way more than the pulpit, or in our case, a cheap music stand. Okay, this isn't just what happens in church the, the 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 thought that they would have had was uh, Paul's original audience was a herald, and a herald would be out on the street doing one of these, "Hear ye, hear ye!" You know the water tower burned down yesterday. You know, and I, it was that was the newspaper. The newspaper was a human being, like screaming out on the street. By the way, I think if I would have been alive back then, I don't think I would have been. Well, you know they didn't have pastoral vocations back then. I, I think I would have pastored a church, an underground church or something called Awaken. But uh, uh, for my job, for my day job, I think I would have been this herald. That seems like it would be so fun. I would have loved that. But I would have demanded a bell. I got to have the bell. Um, so I wonder if the bell was for more experienced heralds. You, know, you didn't get that unless you were really good because you would just be too distracting and annoying. It's my theory. I'm sticking to it. Uh, so the problem with these Roman Jews and perhaps some in this room tonight is that they didn't recognize the beauty of the message right in front of them. Does that ever break your heart when you think you don't have to struggle like this? You don't have to face the losses in your tr- and the trials in your life trying to numb yourself from them. You don't have to be exploring for meaning and purpose and, and constantly going from rel- broken relationship to broken relationship. You don't have to have life somehow work out on your own terms to be happy. The true joy is found in Christ. That's where Paul was here. So in verse 15, it says, And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, How beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. But not everyone welcomes the good news, for Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message? So, even way back in the time of Isaiah, you know, rewind redemptive history 700 years from this moment in Romans 10. And Isaiah was saying the same thing to God's people back then who's heard our message? In other words, no one's receiving it. There's people who are claiming faith outwardly and trying to adhere to the law, but inwardly, they're not truly Jewish. And actually, this word believed is more correctly translated in the uh, ESV. I think the NIV and the NLT kind of miss it here. It's translated obeyed, obeyed. So he's saying, Lord, who has believed or obeyed your message? So the Jews were not obeying the message, just as they weren't 700 years before. So what was lacking in their faith? What was lacking? In verse 17, it says, so faith comes from hearing. That is, hearing the good news about Christ. So what was lacking was Christ, the Messiah. Many people try to find uh, all kinds of ways to get to God, but without Christ, it's nonsense. In verse 18, it says, but I ask, have the people of Israel actually heard the message? So again, here's the argument. Maybe they haven't heard. Maybe that's why more Jews aren't receiving Christ, because they haven't heard the message. Paul says, yes, they have. The message has gone throughout the earth and uh, the words to all the world. So Paul's quoting from Psalm 19 here and saying, just as creation testifies to God's glory and has professed his message, so the gospel has gone out. These Jews have heard it in their synagogues. Wherever uh, the law has been taught, the gospel has gone out. Then maybe they didn't understand that was the second. Maybe they didn't hear. Maybe they didn't understand. In Romans 10, 19, Paul says, but I asked, did the people of Israel really understand? He answers, yes, they did. For even in the time of Moses, God said, I will rouse your jealousy through people who are not even a nation. I will provoke your anger through the foolish Gentiles. They did understand. That's, why, that's, that's not why more Jews weren't receiving Christ. Paul's showing that the Jews did understand, and he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21, pointing to how the Gentiles uh, show the Jews up, so to speak, by making them jealous. That's the heart, that they might see their need for the Lord. So why did these Israelites not believe? Why did they not believe? They didn't believe because their hearts were rebellious and hard towards God even though outwardly they looked like they had it all together. They were the religious police of the day. They were, they were who everyone looked to as a moral authority, yet they were far from God. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. Romans 10 verse 20 says, And later Isaiah spoke boldly for God, saying, I was found by people who were not looking for me. I showed myself to those who were not asking for me. But regarding Israel, God said, all day long I opened my arms to them, but they were disobedient and rebellious. So God revealed himself to those who weren't even looking for him. And to Israel, God says, all day long he's opened his arms to them, but they were disobedient and rebellious. So Paul closes the loop. He's saying they're like Pharaoh who who they think is millions of miles beneath them. Their legalism is nailing the gates of hell closed on them. And do you see the passion, the uh, uh, careful expression of redemptive logic that Paul uses here? That it's by grace that we're saved, not through works. So we're without excuse. You know, the call for those of us who know and love Jesus is, you know, some of us in this room, are, we're not spring chickens anymore. And we've transitioned from one life station to the next, and we haven't counted the cost. What does it look like to follow Christ now that I'm raising kids? I remember what it was like when I was in college and what it meant to be discipled then, but what about now? And we're riding on the fact that many years ago, we had a vibrant and healthy relationship with Christ. And we've become legalistic. We hide our sin. We try to appear Like we're more righteous than what we actually are. It's become about appearances, and our hearts are far from God. It's become about attending meetings. And that sense of God's grace that saved us to begin with is far from our hearts. And maybe we, like uh, uh, Scott's friend many years ago that his church reached out to, that single mom, we say, God, you owe me an explanation. We've been hit hard in life, and we haven't reevaluated what does it look like to walk in the gospel of grace now. I don't want this to just be about church attendance and doing the right stuff. I want a heart that's close to the Lord. I don't want to neglect my first love, and I think this is a season as a church where we need to come back to our first love. He doesn't want us to just simply attend a religious service. Or check off a box that we read our Bible our one-year Bible that day. He wants to be near to us. He wants to be close to us. He wants an intimate, passionate, life-giving relationship with us. He says that we're the apple of his eye. He tells us in Zephaniah that he rejoices over us with singing. If we were if Jesus were to appear in the flesh before us right now, he would embarrass us with his expression of love. He would not appear like like some stoic rabbi. He would appear like a daddy who is crazy about you and loves you, and he's on your side. So what that means for you, you, you seasoned saints out there, is if you've blown it, if you've fallen, if your life is broken right now, it doesn't mean that you have to somehow feel ashamed long enough to pay the penalty that you deserve. It means that you realize Jesus is on your side to pick up the pieces. He's always been there. And he loves you. He's for you. He's with you. And then for others of you, you're in a place right now where you're relying on some other system. It could be another religious system that you look to for salvation. It could be your work ethic. It could be entertainment. It could be a host of different things that you're looking to to somehow make life work salvation is found in christ alone and just because there's suffering around us many of you say hey god's words failed because i've heard the gospel or at least pieces of it but look at all the suffering i mean my goodness my my family from florida you can be praying for them they just went through hurricane michael the third uh uh, most destructive storm in u.s history It'll be two months at least before schools open. There's, they can't drink the water. There's no electricity. Billions and billions of dollars of damage. How can God be in that? How can God be in your miscarriage? How can God be in the premature death of your parent? How can God be in the uh, be in the rejection that you've experienced, the abuse that you've experienced? I mean, many of us think every time I turn on the news or read it on my phone, isn't that proof that God doesn't exist? If we didn't suffer, we wouldn't see our need for him. We wouldn't experience our humanness. We wouldn't experience our brokenness. God uses the broken things we see around us and in us to show us our need for him to show us that sin doesn't have to win. There's there's something inside all of us that knows this world is not how it should be. Depression and discouragement and despair should not be the condition of my heart. Don't our hearts long for more? Isn't that why we go on vacation? Isn't that why we go to the bar? Isn't that why we hang out with friends? Isn't that why we look forward all week to the OSU game? Because there's something in us that's designed for joy and pleasure, and that chip has been given to us by the one and only Jesus Christ. It was programmed by him, and we only find it in him, the one who made us and the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Lord, please use your word in Romans 10, Lord, to remind us of what it means to follow you, Lord, that it is by grace, not through works that we're saved, we love you, we worship you, and Lord, right now, I pray that you would help us to do that with our resources. As we take our offering, Lord, please use these resources, Lord, for the advancement of your kingdom. Lord, we thank you for the ways that you've provided for us, and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.